A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode contains references to war and everything that goes with it. Listener discretion is advised. Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 119, Wakatoua. This podcast is recorded in Te Whanganui Atara, on the rohe of Mueupoko, Taranaki Whanganui, Te Atiawa and Te Natitoa Rangatira. We are generously supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash historyaotearoa. Last time we discussed the pa, the forts that Māori used to defend themselves and their most precious resource food. Today we're going to talk about wakatoa, war canoes, discussing all about how they were built and used. Although Māori didn't engage in naval warfare, at least as far as I'm aware, waka were very important for transporting troops to and from battle. Because of this, they were often targeted as war booty, or to destroy as a means of denying the enemy escape. They also had elaborate carvings on them, which made them striking both on and off the water. This episode is what you might call a double feature, since I don't really want to break it up into two separate episodes. So instead, it's just going to be a big one. First, it might be helpful to define what makes a wakatoa different to a regular waka. As we know, waka means canoe, and adding towa to it, the word for war party, makes a war canoe, so these were used for transporting troops. Unlike regular canoes, wakatoa had a lot of carvings on them, both at the bow and stern, that's the front and back, which made them a marvel of artistic design, but also very eye-catching on the water, and perhaps even intimidating if that was the intended effect. 
Although they had this extra carving and were used for moving troops from place to place, it was pretty common for wakatoa to be available for the community to use for domestic purposes in peacetime. Only the most tapu wakatoa were reserved purely for warfare. Some could be used for peacefully visiting neighbours, trading and sometimes fishing. In these cases, the fancy toihu and taurapa, the prow and stern carvings, would be taken off and stored, presumably to avoid damage and maybe misunderstandings from anyone who saw them. So, in reality, there wasn't necessarily a lot separating a waka from a wakatoa, and in some ways it was related to what kind of dressing a waka had at any given moment. Since wakatoa were used by the community for fishing, trade and transport, they were generally owned collectively by the hapu, rather than by a single person. Which makes sense, since they benefited the whole tribe, as well as the fact that it was a large community effort to make them. A particularly large waka could take upwards of two years or more to finish. From selecting the huge totara or kodi that would serve as the hull, all the way to the maiden voyage. Everyone in the community had a role to play. Of course there were the carvers and labourers who actually built the waka, but the people back in the village, those keeping the households running, the fires going and the food hot, were just as important in the construction of wakatoa. Both men and women needed to do their part to ensure success. The person in charge of this whole endeavour would be a tohunga tarai waka, an expert waka builder. They would oversee the construction and personally complete the most important bits themselves, usually the finer details on the carvings that required a lot of skill. Along with them, there were other carvers from neighbouring tribes that would come to help, as well as spiritual tonga to recite karakia at various times during construction, and any other labourers that were needed for less precise tasks. Women and the elderly would weave harakeke or kiakia into sails and ropes. The construction would at least take months, usually a fair distance away from the main settlement, probably because of tapu. Additionally, ropo would be used as a corking material, with kokowai and shark oil being used for red paint. Kai for the workers would be cooked in a separate hangi, again because of tapu, and all of this was happening while the usual daily activities of the village continued. So, what was the exact process for building a wakatoa? Well, the first thing to do was to head out into the bush to find a suitable tree, which would form the hull of the canoe. The tree needed to be rather large, since the hull would be carved out from a single piece of wood, so finding the right one usually involved inspecting a bunch of potential trees. Selecting a tree was one of the most important steps in building a waka, it would potentially influence every single step after it, so a wrong move here could cause a heap of issues, perhaps even total abandonment of the project partway through, which of course would be devastating. Hapu south of Tamaki Makoto, 
Auckland generally used tōtara for this purpose, and hapū north of Auckland preferred kauri. Both trees were mostly free of knots and could be easily cut with a stone toki. Kahikatea or rimu were the second choices if kauri or tōtara weren't available. The Tohonga Tarai Waka would inspect trees for any irregularities or issues, such as quote-unquote flangy roots which could indicate cracks in the trunk. If the grain was twisted or the bark spongy, that could indicate too much sap, and that the tree would be too weak. Decaying roots was also something to watch out for, as it would mean that the tree was dying, and didn't have as much structural integrity as it may appear. Green flags to look for were whether the tree was close to the valley floor, which would often mean it had been nourished more, resulting in stronger wood. A thick bark on the tree with close grain and a more mature tree were also good signs. Assuming they found a good tree, occasionally it wouldn't actually be on the hapu's rohe, and a bit of trade negotiation would need to occur to get the rights to cut it down. Once that was out of the way, any bushes around the tree would be cleared, partly for the practical purpose of felling it, and partly to indicate that this was the lucky tree, or perhaps from the tree's perspective, maybe unlucky. Sometimes it could be a while between selection and getting out the chainsaw, so clearing the bushes made it easier to find when they came back. Remember, this tree was probably in the middle of the bush in the wop-wops, so making some sort of indication on the ground was needed to know which specific tree was the one they wanted. This also ensured that anyone who stumbled on the area knew that they shouldn't touch the tree, because it was now tapu. If it was going to be quite a while before they felled the tree, a section of bark was removed, making the tree decay along the strip, which would make it easier for the adze to cut into. Occasionally, this was done to younger trees as well, so that when they became mature, they would already be easier to cut down. Cutting down a massive mature tōtara or kauri tree, which was possibly decades or even hundreds of years old, was obviously quite an undertaking, possibly taking anywhere between two to five days. Keeping in mind that Māori didn't have metal tools, and mostly used stone toki. One strategy was to cut two parallel channels up to a metre apart horizontally around the tree. Once done, a heavy adze would cut out the wood between the lines until the tree came down. Sometimes fire would be used to help burn and then remove the wood. Further rituals and thanks would be made to Tane Mahuta once the tree was on the ground, and offerings would be made, such as ferns or cooked food, that were left on the stump. Before the tree was hollowed out, the Tohonga Tarai Waka would double-check the trunk to make sure that it was still all good and hadn't been damaged when it came crashing down. Assuming everything was fine, the branches would be removed with a combination of fire and adzes. The fire would be lit where a cut was made, waiting until it burnt a few centimetres into the wood, at which point water was then put on the spot to cool it. 
This was done so that when the ads cut into it, it wouldn't be exposed to extreme heat that would damage it. Once cool, the ads would cut into the spot, made easier to chop due to the fire. This was repeated until the desired part was removed. This process was apparently faster than just using adzes and safer than just using fire. After the branches were removed, the general shape of the waka would be carved out, with the base of the tree usually forming the bough, which tended to be broader than the stone. The amount of work done at this step depended a bit on how far the tree would need to be dragged to the proper building site, since most of the work wouldn't actually occur in the same place the tree was felled. Normally, they wanted to move it at least a bit closer to the kaina. A short trip would mean a lot of work could be done in the bush where the tree was cut down, but if the trip was long or the terrain wasn't super favourable, then not much would be done to keep the trunk as sturdy as possible, which would help avoid damage along its journey. The tree would pretty much always be damaged or lose wood along the way, so the overseeing tohonga had to take that into account in the final design. If he took too much off, the tree would be too small after being moved. While the main hull was being prepared, a few other things were going on off to the side. Other workers would be carving out the battens that would be added to the sides to raise the height of the waka. These were often elaborately carved and lashed to the waka with cord. A homi kokomo, or false end, was also sometimes added if the main tree ended up being too short for what they wanted, or if the trunk had been damaged at some point. The false end acted like a normal front or back part of the waka, just that it was lashed to the main hull instead of being part of it. The toihu and taurapa, the kind of figureheads for the bow and stern, were also started fairly early on to ensure that they were finished at roughly the same time as the rest of the waka. We'll talk about these parts in greater length a bit later. Once the whole thing was ready to move, ropes would be tied to the waka made of tea leaves and would be very thick, potentially the size of a person's wrist, to ensure they were strong enough to pull the heavy tree. Logs of wood were placed under the waka to help it roll along the ground, while other workers from the village would be called in to clear a path through the bush. This part was particularly tense. A lot could go wrong at this stage. A rope could snap, the tree might roll around too much, or it might go down a hill smashing into some rocks. As such, the Tohonga Taraiwaka would scope out the safest route, and sometimes a longer route with less hills was a better idea than one that was shorter but had a higher chance to damage the tree. To move the waka, the team would be split into three different groups. One to grab the ropes and pull, another to walk next to the waka to keep it upright, and the third to pick up the skids from the back and place them in front of the waka as it rolled over them. Dragging the waka in this way, they could cover up to 8 kilometres a day, less if the terrain wasn't favourable. 
as the three teams worked in unison, a kaya, which is a word used to mean the leader of a haka, would sing rangi waka, waka hauling songs. These waiata would be chosen for their appropriateness, such as songs or chants with long syllables for slow uphill work and shorter syllables for faster terrain, like flat or downhill. Experienced kaya would sometimes change the typical verses of well-known songs to bring in topical subjects, to make the work a bit more interesting, exciting, or possibly even funny. You know, just dudes being guys in the bush! Once the waka had reached the final construction site, it would be seasoned if it hadn't already. Now, this obviously didn't mean they put salt and pepper on it. It involved leaving the waka in a trench, river, or the sea for a few months. The idea was that this would strengthen the wood and make it ready for the type of conditions it would be experiencing throughout its new life. To protect the waka from too much damage, a temporary shelter would be erected around it, which would also serve to indicate to others that the area was tapu for the time being. Once seasoned, the most experienced carpenters would edge the waka down further into its final shape, making sure the hull was as close to symmetrical as possible. Obviously, this was done without drawn plans, measuring tape, or any other modern conveniences, so an exactly symmetrical shape wasn't possible, but they got pretty damn close, which is a testament to the skill of these carvers. The inside of the waka was edged to get it as smooth as possible, and then finished with sandstone or sharkskin to sand it down even more. The waka would often accumulate water inside when out at sea, so to avoid having to tip it upside down each time they brought it back on land, sometimes a hole was bored in the middle to allow the water to drip out. The hole would then be plugged when heading back out to sea. On the outside of the hull, there were a few designs that could be chosen, from a smooth surface to a fish-scale-like pattern, or what was called a quote-unquote scalloped finish, which meant it kinda had concave grooves and slight ridges in it. The idea behind the scalloped, or I suppose scalloped, hull finish was to break up the water around the waka so that it could glide faster. This finish was apparently achieved with a specific type of toki, called a toki umarua, or double-shouldered adze. Once the hull was finished, both inside and out, the homi kokomo, the false end, would be attached if required, some having one at both the front and back, secured to the main hull with harakeke or kiakia rope. Ropo was placed between the joins and put into any other cracks to keep it all watertight. Next step was to lash on the battens, called rowawa. This would be done by four teams of two, each one responsible for one end of the two battens. There was a lot going on with how these battens were lashed to the hull, and it was pretty complicated, so I won't go into the nitty-gritty. Once the battens were in place, any gaps were corked with the gum of the hoho tree, which was mixed with harakeke. 
Poles would be placed between each seated position, marking out where each paddler would be, as well as keeping the hull rigid. These poles were called tomanu, and allowed the paddlers to brace their knees against the one in front and lean on the one behind. These would sometimes have carvings on them as well, possibly to indicate that that particular spot was reserved for a rangatira or tohunga, and to warn others, maybe not to sit there. Naturally, the steersman would sit at the rearmost tomanu to guide the waka with a large paddle. The seat in front of the steersman was usually reserved for the leader of the towa, so the rangatira or riki. Larger waka could hold four men abreast, the two on the outside paddling, and then swapping with the two on the inside when they got tired. Next to go in was the flooring, thin rods of manuka running the length of the waka, which were either tied to the tomanu with vines or secured to them with rigid poles. A gap or two was left in between these manuka mats to allow for bailing of water if required. The final stage of construction was painting, and they were pretty much entirely painted red, with some parts being painted black. The red paint was made with shark oil and kokowai, or sometimes burnt clay, while the black paint was made by mixing shark oil with charcoal. The paintbrushes used to apply the colour were made of kahu feathers, a species of hawk. Parts that were made separately and lashed on, like the toihu and torapa, were painted before they were attached to make it easier. Northern iwi would often paint the toihu and torapa black, which was sometimes done by setting the parts in a bath of water that had been boiled with pounded hino bark extracting the dark tannins and staining the wood. Oil would then be rubbed over the newly stained wood to seal in the colour. White albatross feathers would often line the waka on the lashings that joined the battens to the hull. At last, the wakatoa was ready for its maiden voyage. And this was a pretty big occasion, especially as it would have been a whole community effort to get the thing built over months or possibly even years. Tonga would officiate the ceremony, performing a number of rituals and karakia. The first order of business was, naturally, to lift the heavy tapu from the waka so that it could be ready for normal use. This could involve taking a branch, dipping it in the water, and hitting the toihu while reciting karakia. If the karakia was spoken well, it was a good tohu, with some stumbling indicating the waka may be cursed and best avoided. This ritual often finished with a woman climbing into the waka to finally remove the tapu. The waka could then be put into the water while karakia related to Tangaroa were being said, asking him to protect the waka and its crew while it was in his domain. Once the waka was floating in the water, there wasn't much else for the crew to do other than hop in and get underway with the maiden voyage, whatever that may be. Upon their return, the waka would be beached, stern first, and handed back over to the Tonga Tarai waka, 
Bringing the waka in stone first seems to have been done for some superstitious reasons that had practical basis. It was considered unlucky to bring it in prowl first, so it would be turned around and backed in, which also allowed for a speedy getaway if needed. The Tohunga Tarai waka, who had now observed the waka in action and the wake it left, could make any final adjustments before fully handing it over to the hapu. Remember, carvers were brought in from all over the regions, based on their skill and fame, so it is very likely that the Tohunga Tarai waka was actually not from the area. So, with his job done, he'd be paid in food or goods before he set off back home. A lot of this information is primarily about single-hulled waka, but there are reports of double-hulled waka, essentially two waka that had been attached to each other via rods and lashings, or even a platform to stand on between them. There isn't much known about them, but we do know that Abel Tasman and James Cook saw them. Tasman didn't say too much, probably because the waka was attacking them and so he was preoccupied, and Joseph Banks was also pretty slim on the details. Journals of the whalers, sealers, and explorers that came over in the early days of European contact suggest that after Cook's time, double-hulled waka weren't really a thing anymore. Or rather, permanent ones weren't. Two single-hulled waka could still be lashed together as and when needed, such as when setting the huge nets we talked about in the fishing episodes. These would be split back into their individual waka after the task was done. However, Permanent double-hulled waka seem to have still been used in the South Island, even after they fell out of favour in the North Island. A hypothesis as to why they persisted in the south is that the motu may have not had enough suitable trees for big, single-hulled waka, so smaller, double ones were favoured. Tall, wide tōtara or kauri were plentiful and easy to access in most of the North Island, but similar-sized trees, particularly in width, were harder to find in the South Island. Smaller, single-hulled waka would struggle with the rough seas, so the second hull was needed to stabilise it. When not in use, wakatoa were often put into like an open car port called farau or tafuru. Not much evidence survives of these buildings, but it is thought that they had gabled roofs and were quite long to cover the whole waka. Some farau had a sort of mezzanine floor in them where families would sleep, presumably the ones who were responsible for maintaining the waka. When tucked away in the shed, the waka would be put on top of wooden rollers to stop it touching the ground and rotting on the bottom. The taurapa and ihu were also removed and stored. If the weather was particularly shitty, manuka brush could be used to make a temporary wall to protect the waka from wind and rain. 
this is roughly the halfway point in the episode. We're next going to talk about the Tauihu and Taurapa, along with how the waka was used more generally in the second half of the episode. So if you want to have a break, or your commute has now ended, this is a good time to stop. I'll be waiting here for when you return. Otherwise, you can continue on, and I'll just keep talking for the next sort of 30 minutes or so. So, as I mentioned earlier, I want to give the Tauihu and Taurapa, the bow and stern respectively, particular focus. Because these were huge, elaborately carved pieces. You might even say that they were the centerpieces of the Wakatoa, and I would hazard a guess that they were used to show off the wealth and status of a hapu in an easy-to-understand visual way. Something that, if you were standing on the side of the river watching it pass by, you knew shit was about to go down. Let's start with the toihu, which was the prow of the waka, the pointed bit at the front. And this was usually heavily carved with some amazing designs. There were three main styles of design for toihu. The most common style was the pato, characterised by a panel of two carved spirals behind the carving of a person at the front, with their tongue and arms stretched not too dissimilar to the figureheads of mermaids and such found on European ships. The three main elements of Pato were the carved figure leading the waka with his arms stretched out behind him, the panel consisting of the two carved spirals, and another figure sitting at the back looking into the waka. Most Pato were made of a single piece of wood, but there are a few examples that were lashed together. The name is derived from the two spirals in the central panel, the spirals also being called pato. These spirals would often have holes throughout them, which is really difficult to do without breaking the wood, even with metal tools, let alone stone ones. It really is another testament to the skill of these craftsmen. If you want to find out more about how these were made, we discuss the technique of making these in our carving episodes. The second design was called Tu'ere, and had a thin trapezoid panel which had some curved ribs through the middle. This usually didn't feature a figurehead, but the panel was also elaborately carved. Tuere is often called the Northern style, being used as far south as North Waikato, but it was also used in the Bay of Plenty, East Coast, and Coromandel, so it might be more accurate to say it was a Northeastern style. Tuere were pretty easy to tell apart from Pato with the lack of spirals and figurehead. They're probably less immediately visually striking, but there was still a lot of fantastic carving work gone into them. Tuere were generally made from separate blocks of wood. A base, central panel, rear splash guard, which did actually have a carved figure in it, and a carved human head called a parata on the front underside of the hull, sitting just above the waterline. The central panel would be carved with a long manaya leading up to a curved head with arms and legs stretched out to 
kind of make it look like the Manaya was sailing above the water. The third style was much less common and was essentially a combination of the pato and tu'ere. The basic design was similar to a pato with a central panel, though it didn't have the distinctive carved figure at the front. Instead, it had a manaya, with the head at the top and front, with the body running along the central panel, like a tuere. The central panel would also often have a couple of spirals carved into it, like a pato, along with the body of the manaya and a carved figure at the back, facing into the waka. Like the pato, it was usually made of a singular piece of wood. Taurapa, or sometimes just rapa, were the stern pieces of the wakatoa. Often made from totara or matai, taurapa were like toihu in that they were often separated from the rest of the waka when not in use and carefully stored, often being passed down through the generations if possible. The piece usually had a pair of curved ribs running along it, which followed on from the lines of the waka, going from the base of the taurapa to about three quarters up, tapering as they change into a manaya, and the ribs would often be flanked by many pato on the panel. There are a couple of possible explanations of what the two ribs mean or represent. The first is that they represent, quote, the dual life principles of the Māori, end quote. Those two principles being the divine and mortal, or ira atua and ira tangata. The other is that the ribs are meant to represent the beak of the kōtuku, the white heron, which is also found on the modern $2 coin. The other major feature of a taurapa is the carved human figure at the base, who faces forward overlooking the crew. The figure is usually said to be Puhikai Ariki, an ancestral atua. There is a lot of conformity among taurapa across the country, so that could indicate some intertribal significance to the designs, perhaps even dating back to the period before Māori arrived in Aotearoa. Two quote-unquote streamers of kereru or kaka tail feathers could be attached to the bottom of the taurapa, going up it, over the top, and draped down the back, so that they trailed behind the waka. During important events, or when heading out on a raid, wakatoa were often decorated with two hihi. Not the tiny yellow birds, these were rods of manuka or tanekaha that were placed at the bow of the vessel, and had a hoop tied to the end, called the karu atua, which translates to the very exciting sounding Eye of God. It's also thought that a diamond shape might have been made within the circle to represent the eyes specifically. No one is really sure what these were used for, but one theory is that they were somehow related to navigation. Toroa, or takapu feathers, albatross and gannet, were attached to the rods and hoops to decorate them. With that, we've covered all of the main parts of a wakatoa. But you wouldn't get very far without a sail or paddles, and you might be in trouble if you don't have an anchor or some bailers. So let's talk about those. 
Anchors, or punga, were obviously needed to keep waka in place when their owners wanted them to be stationary. And there were a few different types of anchors used. One of the more complex types was baskets filled with rocks. Or the anchor could be some wood, often puhutakawa, lashed together with a stone in the middle. They would ensure the timber was crooked so that when the anchor dropped, it would dig into the sea floor. A more simple anchor could just be a rope tied around a large rock, usually one that was in the vague shape of a dumbbell if possible, so that the rope could be tied around the groove in the middle. If a rock with the right shape couldn't be found, a groove would be made or a hole drilled to allow the rope to pass through. As with most things, panga that were associated with important waka were much more decorated, sometimes having a pattern carved into them, as well as being named. Most wakatoa designed to go into the ocean also had a sea anchor shaped kinda like a windsock, which would trap water within it to make it heavy, or rather impose enough drag so that the waka wouldn't move. The anchor would be lowered from the bow, and the crew would move to the stern to counterbalance it. Tata were balers, which were used to bale water if things got a bit dicey. Although they were very practical items, they were often heavily carved around the handle and rim, as well as being named if they belonged to an important waka. The carving on the top of the handle was often of a human head, the whole thing often being made of maire, mātai, or hino. They are an interesting design, being a kind of scoop, but instead of the handle coming out the back, say like a gardening trowel, it goes over the bowl of the tata, being curved so it fit in the hand better. While they were bailing, the crew would often recite karakia as a request for help from the gods. Keeping the waka afloat and stationary was all well and good, but it didn't matter much if you couldn't get to where you needed to go. It is thought that prior to European arrival, sails, called ra in te reo, were common on wakatoa. There is only one example currently known of a pre-European Māori sail that has survived to the modern day, residing in, where else, the British Museum. She is called Tara and was gifted to the museum by the British Admiralty in 1890, though how the Admiralty obtained her is unknown. She is an extremely important taonga, Not just in the sense that she's one of a kind, at least as of right now, but also because the people that made her used techniques that were lost and are no longer in practice. Such as how she is made of 13 panels weaved together with a zigzag pattern that isn't broken by the panel joins. There are air holes to allow the wind to pass through, feathers to possibly ascertain wind direction, Overall, she is just fantastic. She has been a great boon to modern weavers who have been given the opportunity to study her in Britain. However, right now, they don't have to travel far at all. At time of release, Tara is on temporary loan from the British Museum to the Christchurch Art Gallery until October 2023 
when she will be taken to the Auckland Museum and displayed there. So, if you are interested in seeing a one-of-a-kind taonga, you better be in quick. If you want to hear all about Tara and the process of bringing her home from the people who actually did that important mahi, well, that is exactly who I spoke to for the next episode. So hold on for that when it comes out in two weeks' time. Although we only have one surviving example, the reason historians think sails were pretty common is because many early European explorers recorded seeing sails on waka in their journals, along with many illustrations showing the same thing. Some from Sidney Parkinson, who was on Cook's first voyage, and one from Isaac Gillesman's, who was on Abel Tasman's expedition. What likely caused the ancient art of sail-making that Māori had practised for hundreds if not thousands of years to be forgotten was probably European materials like canvas becoming widely available in the 19th century. It's thought that Māori sails were generally made of kekia, harakeke or raupō. There were two different types of sails, both triangular, the difference mostly being in how they were rigged. They could be set up with the sail being vertical, or kind of slanted in the waka. In both cases, it wasn't uncommon for paddling to still occur, especially to stabilise the vessel in rough seas. Overall, we don't know a huge amount about how these sails worked, or how they were operated, other than a basic understanding of how they were set up and possibly raised and lowered. Hallway, paddles, were the main way to get a waka moving, other than using sails when able to do so. Hoe used to paddle were usually about 140 to 170 centimetres long, and made of mātai or manuka, both strong and light woods. The hoe had a straight handle, but the blade had a slight angle to it, to help push down the water when it was dipped in, to propel the waka forward. This meant that those paddling didn't need to pull the hoe back before pulling it out, which used much more energy and was less efficient. Sometimes the paddle would have a scoop in it to make this process even more efficient. Some hoe also had a little knob at the end of the blade to stop the whole thing from splitting if it was bumped against a rock that couldn't be seen under the water. This was the basic design of hoe, but of course there were lots of regional variations, such as curved handles being called waikato style, though they were found in other areas too. Some paddles also had a much broader blade, since the standard design was quite narrow. These broader hoe were meant to double as a weapon when needed. Like many items that had lots of carving, paddles were collected by various people that visited Aotearoa and took them back to private collections and museums. However, most that have survived to the modern day don't have any carving on them, other than a few that were owned by rangatira, and some that were specifically produced as a commodity to sell to European tourists. 
Rangatira didn't usually do the actual paddling, but they would use their paddle to help quote-unquote encourage the crew, or as a replacement for a tefa-tefa, taiaha, or other long item during ceremonies. These paddles would have various amounts of carving, paint, stain, or even could be charred a bit. There is also one example of a whalebone hoe that is currently held by Te Papa. Obviously, the act of paddling was an exhausting job, especially if there wasn't any wind to help them along. Paddlers would usually kneel as they paddled, and there were a couple of different strokes that could be used. The kaihotu or kaituki, time caller, would be the one to choose which stroke was best, considering the weather and how tired the crew were. Starting from stationary, the crew would need to give the waka enough speed to get up onto the plane. This was achieved with three deep, strong strokes, which would be succeeded by 40 short strokes. The idea was to pull the waka out of the water with the three strokes, and then the shorter ones would get the waka up to the correct speed. Once the waka was at cruising speed, the kaituki would vary the tempo of his chants to ensure the paddlers kept the waka at the desired speed, as well as making sure they didn't get too knackered. If the kaituki wanted to go full tilt, he would tell the crew to make long, deep strokes, while also changing the chant to a slightly slower beat. These deeper strokes required the crew to go balls to the wall, though naturally this could only be maintained for a short time, so was only used in bursts. For times when a regular, sustained speed was needed over a long distance, the kaituki would call for a stroke which was an alternation of strong and light strokes, allowing the paddlers to give a full, hard push and then recover with a lighter one, which had the added benefit of keeping the speed of the waka up even as the crew had some respite. If the weather was a bit rough, then a fast stroke could be used by just dipping in the tip of the blade. This was so that the paddlers would have more control to move or change course, as well as save their energy so they could weather the storm. Paddling wasn't the only skill the crew needed to be proficient at, though. One person wrote that when a waka began to list to one side in rough seas, paddlers on the side that the swell was coming from had to lean out over the edge and, quote, thrust their paddles deep into the wave, and by a curious action, forced the water under the canoe, end quote. The idea was to stop the waka from flipping. Another incident occurred where someone was watching as a waka arrived at a river mouth, and as it went over a swell, some of the crew jumped out and held onto the sides to ensure it stayed upright. As well as the hoe used for paddling, hoe pepiru or hoe ururangi are steering paddles. These were around 1.8 to 2.7 metres long, and totally straight, as opposed to the slightly curved paddling hoe. They were usually made of heavier woods, since they would need to withstand the forces exerted upon them when the waka was turned. The handles often had manaya carved into them as well. 
The person who held this hallway and steered the waka was the kai whakatiri, and they would be seated at the base of the taurapa, right at the back of the waka. This was a pretty highly skilled job. Wakatoa sit very low in the water, meaning it wasn't that hard to capsize them. So a lot of trust was put into the kai whakateri to steer the waka through rough seas or fast rivers. Even so, it wasn't uncommon for water to make it into the hull, which is where the bailers would come in. The kai whakateri was basically the captain of the ship. He was responsible for keeping the waka safe, and any crewman wanting to see the sunrise would do exactly what he said immediately. If the waka was quite large, it was common to have a second steersman at the bow, whose job it was to help adjust the waka's course in the case of over or under steering, since the steersman at the back didn't have as good of a view. This front steersman would adjust course by putting a paddle in the water on the side he wanted to turn and then put it at an angle. The other important person on the waka was obviously the kaituki, the time caller, whose job it was to regulate the tempo of the paddlers. He would walk up and down the waka as he did so, making sure to keep his balance. The following account was written by a European who saw a wakatoa at full speed. Quote, the kaituki, by singing and various gesticulations, incites the crew to ply their paddles, and denotes, by the rhythm of the song he chooses, the greater or less rapidity of the stroke desired. Such a song is called a tukiwaka. In large war canoes, manned sometimes by 60 or 70 men, there are generally two kaituki acting as leaders, one placed near the bow and the other the stern. In addition to their voices, they have in the hand some native weapon which they brandish in time. They either sing by turns, one responding to the other, or they sing together, exemptorizing at the same time various jokes and witticisms, by introducing into the traditional songs new verses having reference to the momentary situation. It is remarkable to see how the pullers are, in this manner, guided in keeping time." When the kaituki wasn't chanting, his job was to figure out how much progress the waka had made, and adjust the speed of the waka to ensure that it got where it needed to go on time without the crew being dead from exhaustion. So, if they're going a bit slow, he would have them speed up, and vice versa if he felt the crew was tired from paddling too much. A change in effort was usually marked by the kaituki elongating or shortening the length of the vowels in time with when the paddles were in the water. In general, Europeans were really impressed with how Māori kept time with their strokes. Banks writing in his journal, quote, I have seen 15 paddles of a side in one of their canoes move with immensely quick strokes, and at the same time as much justness as if the rowers were animated by one soul. Not the fraction of a second could be observed between the dipping and raising of any two of them, 
the canoe all the while moving with incredible swiftness. So much strength, firmness and agility did they show in their motions, and at the same time such excellent time did they keep, that I have often heard above a hundred paddles struck against the sides of their boats, as directed by their singing, without a mistake ever being made. In managing these canoes, at least in paddling them, they are very expert. In one, I counted 16 paddles on a side, and never did men, I believe, keep better time with their strokes, driving on the boat with immense velocity, end quote. Europeans, as they are wont to do, actually wrote a fair amount on their impressions of Wakatoa, in particular, how amazing it was to see a fleet of them. The following quote comes from the journal of Major R.A. Cruz of the 84th Regiment of Foot. Quote, The fleet was composed of about 50 canoes, many of them 70 or 80 feet long, and a few less than 60. Their prows, sides, and stern posts were handsomely ornamented with a profusion of feathers, and they generally carried two sails made of straw matting. They were filled with warriors, who stood up and shouted as they passed our boat, and held up several human heads as trophies of their success. The largest canoe we saw was 84 feet long, 6 feet wide, and 5 feet deep. It was made of a single kodi tree hollowed out, and raised about 2 feet with planks firmly tied together and to the main trunk, with pieces of flax plant inserted through them. The crevices were filled with reeds to make the canoe watertight. A post 15 feet high rose from the stern, which, together with the sides, was carved in openwork, painted red, and fringed with a profusion of black feathers. The chief sat at the stern and steered the canoe, which was impelled by the united force of 90 naked men, who were painted and ornamented with feathers. Three others, standing upon the thwart sticks, regulated the strokes of the paddles by repeating, with violent gestures, a song in which they were joined by everyone in the vessel. The canoe moved with astonishing rapidity, causing the water to foam on either side of it, and we have observed other war canoes cross the Bay of Islands in perfect safety when it was thought imprudent to lower the ship's boats." End quote. With the arrival of Europeans, and their bigger ships that could carry more with less crew, and more and more of them showing up every week carrying ordnance of a calibre never before seen in these isles, the power, both physically and symbolically, of the Wakatoa diminished significantly in the 19th century. The death knell of the Wakatoa was when roads and railways made travelling over land much easier. By the end of the 1870s, Wakatoa were considered old technology. It wouldn't be until 1935 on the Waikato River that Wakatoa saw a revival, led by Tepuia Herangi sometimes called Princess Tepuia, due to her being the niece of the fifth Māori king. The idea was to strengthen her people's ties to the river and their ancestors who used the water for food, transport and recreation. 
This involved the salvage and repair of a wakatoa called Tewinika, which had been sitting at the mouth of the river since the 1860s, when it was destroyed in the government invasion. Two more waka were built at roughly the same time to join Tewinika for the 1940 Waitangi celebrations, which was a big one since it was the centenary. Despite many hurdles, such as the outbreak of World War II, the plan was a great success, and all three waka were finished on time. From there, Tewinika served as a symbol of the Kingitanga for another 30 years. Today, you can see Tewinika in the Waikato Museum, as she was gifted to the city of Kirikiriroa, Hamilton, in 1973 by the Māori Queen. You can also hear more about Princess Tapuia on the What's Her Name podcast, which I will link in the show notes. From there, Wakatoa has seen a huge revival over the last century, as both a cultural touchstone and as a sport. We're even finding new historical waka that have been hidden for centuries to avoid capture, such as one found in South Taranaki a few months ago, possibly hidden there to avoid confiscation by the Crown in 1869. As I mentioned earlier, I had the immense privilege to talk to the team that brought Tara back to her home in Aotearoa. She is the only known pre-European Māori sail, and so is an immensely important taonga. So, next episode will be an interview with the amazing team, telling us all about Tara and their journey to bring her home. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the Te Reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot, and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, paere tu atu, oki tu mai. See you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.